Namo etasa vagavatu arahatu samasambhutasa Namo etasa vagavatu arahatu samasambhutasa Namo etasa vagavatu arahatu samasambhutasa Bhutam damang sanghang namasami so in the tradition that I've come from, this is customary before giving a talk, this is that one does this chant and it's a way of reminding myself and it's a way of signaling for you that this is not just kind of a hangout chit-chat time. And so, you know, this in this context, this is a, a Dhamma opportunity to reflect and it's a signal to relax but to sit upright and to listen in a way where you're inwardly attending so that you know, really 90% of your attention is inwardly on your own physical body, emotional responses, and 10% is interested in engaging in what I'm saying. And the reason why it's in that proportion is because if something that I say resonates, your body goes, ah, and you know that. So the body response can be an indication of if what's happening is actually resonant. And likewise, if I say something that doesn't resonate, just leave it. But, you know, and the chance that I, I get off track or start with too much of my own personal stuff and it's not actually conducive or useful or in accordance with your deepest understanding, then that would be an indication not just to, not just to ignore it, but to somehow find a way of contacting me, communicating with me and checking out, sharing your perceptions and asking what was going on for me. So in that way, what we do is we set up a situation here that's special. This is not just a hangout chit-chat. It's actually a sacred space and the opportunity is an opportunity to reflect on truths which are conducive for awakening. So bhava is on the door coming in and bhavana means practice. So I thought tonight to speak about practice. Why do we practice? You know, what's the point? And so, you know, everybody here has your own personal story of why you came in the door. And, you know, we could, we could open up a discussion and we could hear, you know, what it was, what was your interest, what was your sense, what was your intuition about what is here, you know, in terms of coming to practice. And I know this Sunday night group is, is, has been going for maybe six weeks now. And it started because Amy thought it would be a nice thing if people came together and shared in, a, in this kind of a context. And so an individual person had an inspiration and that inspiration was shared by others. And look, look at how lovely a gathering there is, you know. And what a lovely space, you know, it's very nice. So if we just step back for a moment and look at, all right, so... If there is an aspiration to practice, what are we practicing for? Okay, what's the point? And one of the universal truths, which is not only limited to the human realm, but it can be found with animals as well, is, is that there's a longing for happiness, and there's a longing to end or release suffering. So if we look at, well, what does it mean to be happy? You know, what does it mean to be a basically, decently good human being? So we, most of the time, are occupying the human realm. (laughs) And so as a human being, what would it mean to be, um, you know, a good person? So if we just set aside the kind of concept of being completely enlightened just for the moment and just explored what it's like just to be a good person, you know, what does it look like for you? You know, what would that include? And so it's actually a worthwhile question. You know, what is involved in being a good person? You know, to contemplate and consider for yourself. So when I've asked myself that question, the kinds of things that I come up with is, is, is that in order to be a good person, I have to have some kind of healthy relationship with myself. Okay? I need to be somewhat reflective and aware of my own body and heart and emotions and in right relationship with them. So it requires, you know, a certain amount of attention to food and exercise and sleep 
and knowing what's going on and a certain amount of care in responding in a way which is skillful to what's happening. Now, the more that I'm able to do that, the more comfortable I feel. The less I'm able to do that, the less comfortable I feel. Okay? But I have discovered that I don't live and exist as an independent bubble, separate. So, I have family, I have friends, I have community, I have people who support me. And so my happiness is also dependent upon being able to interact with these other spheres around me that are also skillful and healthy and wise. So with my family and people who are interested in meditation and people who offer support, there's also a whole way of relating. So in addition to being attentive to what is arising in, in the body, heart, and mind, there's also an interest to live with a certain amount of skill and generosity and service in being able to support what arises for them in a way which is also helpful and skillful. And then I realized, well, you know, it's not just the human realm, you know, it's the animals as well, and it's the planet, you know. I can't live as an independent entity, you know, as a kind of, as an abstract concept without having a place, you know, earth, water, air to drink. And when I live in a healthy relationship with the earth around me, then I also feel a sense of ease and well-being, and I have a sense whether it's accurate or not, (coughs) that the land around me responds. You know, I know animals respond when you respond to them with kindness, and I have the feeling that the land also responds when we relate with kindness. So my health and happiness and well-being and my capacity to live with a sense of ease and well-being is not only limited to my own personal individual sphere, but touches different layers of people and community and family and global community in the land. Now what I've also found is, is is that, you know, intellectually I can work out, you know, good things and not good things, but what one can work out on a piece of paper is actually different than what one can actually manage. Okay? And so all of the things that I know would be skillful to do are not all of the things that I can actually manage to do. And that gap between what I know is good and what I'm actually managing to be able to do is good has to do with what kind of emotional patterns are arising and how I'm relating to them. Okay? So if I feel upset about something, my capacity to respond in a very skillful way is going to be determined on how I'm able to manage how upset I am. And if I'm not able to manage it very well, then my skill and my capacity is less. And also I have, you know, a whole range of ideas of thoughts that I like to think and things that I like to feel and stuff that I like to do. And sometimes I experience that and feel that and, you know, life is hunky-dory and sometimes I don't. So when all of the stuff that I don't like to think and don't like to feel and don't like to experience is arising, then I also need to have an ability to navigate that in order to have a healthy relationship with myself a healthy relationship with others, and a healthy relationship with the world. Because if I can't navigate that, then what I end up doing is different than what I want to do. And the result is I'm not very happy. So I have feelings about what I'd like, and then there's the reality of what is. And so this gap between what I'd like and what is is a territory that needs to be picked up and handled in order to be able to live in a way where one is skillful. All right? Now, I don't know if this is your case, if this is your experience or not. You have to share. You have to decide. You have to see for yourself. Okay? But what one also finds is is that if we take then, okay, so this is just a basically decent human being without having any even inclination of a spiritual practice or the aspiration to become enlightened. That there even is the possibility of being free. Okay? But then if we pick that up, you know, that there's actually the possibility of practicing in a way where there is freedom from suffering, 
And that freedom from suffering is not just a little bit, but completely. Okay? Then we have the same set of things that we have to navigate. The difference between what I think it should be and the actuality of what it actually is. What I know is good and what I feel. All right? And so the gap between my deepest understanding of my values and what I'm actually experiencing is the territory that needs to be navigated in order to manage a spiritual practice in a way which is useful and conducive and supportive rather than something that's not. So, a spiritual practice, if one endeavors to cultivate, has many different aspects to it. Oftentimes, it's centered around meditation, but meditation is one aspect of an entire lifestyle. And what has happened in the West is this one aspect has gotten extracted out of an entire lifestyle and then worshipped and turned into a religion. And so, we forget that there are other elements to it other than just sitting quietly in a room contemplating. You know, there is devotion and there's celebration and there's community and there's joy and there's service. All of these things come together in order to support one's ability to then reflect on and make good use of the stillness and the silence when we do enter a meditation practice. look at that first sense that you know what we all aspire to is to have happiness and to release suffering and then we come back to the kind of basic kinds of happiness that we can experience you know the three kinds of basic happinesses that a, that a human being can experience is the happiness of of uh, the joy that comes from pleasurable sense contact the happiness that comes from cultivating kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity the the happiness that comes from concentration and the happiness that comes from allowing or understanding or realizing something which is actually beyond conditions so the first two kinds of happiness can often be dependent upon conditions. The pleasure from sense contact is often dependent on sense object and contact with it. The dependency of kindness or compassion or joy is dependent on having certain states. And we can learn to cultivate so that we maximize our ability to access these states, understand how to use them, understand how to develop them. And in doing so, we can experience more happiness. But the challenge is, is, is that as human beings, no matter how adept we are at meditation practice, no matter how adept we are at concentration, no matter how adept we are at developing positive states of mind that are genuinely wholesome our bodies by their own very nature are subject to getting older and getting sick and dying so if our happiness and our meditation practice is dependent upon things being in control which a lot of meditation is about working with conditions so that we maximize the positive elements of what we are experiencing, then sooner or later we will inevitably end up in a situation where we are up a creek without a paddle. And in the desert, that's quite a predicament. (laughs) 
Because meditation is not only about developing conditions. No matter how adept we are at being good people, we still have bodies that get sick and eventually die. And that is a truth that's not dependent on whether or not we're practicing correctly or not. Okay? There are many situations in life that arise that are out of control. Certainly catastrophic illness is one of them. Catastrophic loss in other situations is another. Our minds and hearts sometimes not being in our control is something where we just feel out of control. You know, we have thoughts that we don't want. So if our practice is based around control, then sooner or later we feel a failure or we feel that meditation has failed us. So it has to be from the onset that our sense of what practice is is something that both embraces the ability to work with conditions and navigate them so that we are maximizing the wholesome and minimizing the unwholesome. But also we have to be able to touch something which is not dependent on conditions. It has to be, it has got to be that we can feel whatever we feel. If we can't feel whatever we feel, we've got no ground to work with what arises. If there are certain things that we feel that are categorically unacceptable, then we are in a pickle. So, whether we like it or we don't like it, whether it's congruent with our values, whether it's the way it's supposed to be or not supposed to be, whether it's convenient with who we think we are or not, we have got to be able to feel what we feel. And as we navigate between the ability to work with conditions and develop them in a way where there's more skillfulness and allow attention to rest into something which isn't dependent on conditions, then we have a whole new level of richness that we can bring to our inquiry as human beings wanting happiness and wanting the release of suffering. It's no longer just dependent upon having what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. There's a whole new arena that opens up for us. In that arena, we can have the experience of working with things which are profoundly unpleasant and being peaceful with them because there's no longer the identification with the object itself but allowing attention to rest in the spaciousness around which the object is arising. So with pain or fear or very strong unpleasant states of mind like desire or harm, harmful, harmful thoughts What knows those thoughts is not the same as the thought itself. So as there is an ability to watch this arise without identifying with the content, then one enables a kind of freedom which is completely different from the freedom which is required on getting rid of the things that we don't want. So part of the skill of practice is to work with the conditions so that we can have some capacity to maximize what is wholesome and minimize what is unwholesome. That is a skill to be developed and cultivated. And for many of us, it can occupy the most of our lives doing that. It's not a small task. I mean, even learning how to just still the mind and to attend to what's arising just to be able to allow attention to rest on the breath, you know, for most of us, is a practice we can come back to for decades. You know, it's simple but not easy. Yeah. 
But pushing away life in order to focus on the breath is not where happiness is found. Happiness comes from being able to meet what arises and respond skillfully to it. And that includes the the challenge of being able to navigate both the understanding of when we need to work with conditions and allow them to come into more of a positive state and when we can allow attention to relax into something that's spacious and open and allowing and just allow things to be as they are. Whatever it is. Whether we like it, we don't like it. Whether it's congruent with our values or not. It can exist, it can arise, it can be known and it can cease and there doesn't need to be any kind of identification or changing or influencing of it at all. Now, obviously in order to do that, what's required is quite a lot of skill. And the skill doesn't come only from sitting by oneself on a cushion. The skill comes from developing friends, from developing community, from understanding the role of devotion, from understanding the importance of celebration, from understanding the importance of taking care of each other. Because one of the things, which is an interesting thing many of us find, is is that for us it's easy for us to focus on our shortcomings. But it's actually hard for us to focus on our strengths. If I gave you a piece of paper and I asked you to write down all of the things that were shortcomings, we would have reams and reams (laughs) and reams. But if I gave you a piece of paper and asked you to write down your strengths, and your virtues. It was like... (laughs) (laughs) So one of the ways that we can support each other is by mirroring for each other goodness that we don't necessarily see ourselves. That's different from just positive affirmations that we're smearing on top of conditions. <laughs> okay? It's actually touching genuine qualities that are present but a person doesn't actually see themselves. Because as we have access to our own goodness, it gives us capacity for navigating the challenges that we have to experience. And I don't know about you, but in my life, I have challenges that I have to navigate. And if I didn't have access to my own goodness, I wouldn't have the capacity to navigate them. So, developing a skillful community, a loving community, a wise and honest community that is interested and committed to mirroring for each other, each other's goodness, is a phenomenal support in the path. And to do that requires more than just coming into a room and sitting quietly. (laughs) So, you know, one of the things that I really value about coming here to Albuquerque is I feel very impressed with your group. You know, it's unusual to have a group that is so cohesive and so loving when there isn't a resident teacher as the kind of guiding force and principle around which the whole thing has emerged. And so it's a testimony to your own strength, to your own practice, to your own commitment, to your own maturity, that such a cohesive and loving group has emerged and you don't have a resident teacher. It is really lovely to see. So, I'm happy to come. (laughs) Because I benefit. It's nice for me. So, if we look at why do we practice and we take it into a bigger sphere rather than, you know, what's the technique of meditation that we need to focus on, it includes our whole life. It's not only about what happens when we come in the door. It's what happens when we walk out of the door. It's what happens in our intimate relationships. It's what happens in our relationship with our sexuality. It happens in our relationship with our parents, our children, our family, the earth. 
how we relate to the things that we use and the things that we throw away. It relates to everything. Because everything that we do is going to have an impact on how we feel. Everything. And so if we want to open up the sphere and let the whole of our life be the terrain into which our practice is unfolding, then we need a container that's big enough to support that. And we need a commitment that's big enough to support that. So the commitment is not limited to what happens when I sit on my cushion and I'm quiet. But what is happening in every part of my life? Where do I experience happiness and the absence of happiness? And what can I do in order to bring happiness into a place of maturity and fulfillment? Not just because I am able to receive the beauty of the world. And not just because I have access to the joy and compassion that comes from cultivating positive states of mind. But beginning to get a sense of a happiness that comes that isn't dependent on anyone or anything. And ironically, in order to touch a happiness that isn't dependent on anyone or anything, one needs an incredibly cohesive community to do that. So these are reflections. I ask that you do not believe a single thing I said. Consider for yourself if what I say resonates. If it resonates, it's your resonance. It's your own truth that's resonating. If it doesn't resonate, leave it. You know, but if I ever am in a situation where I'm speaking in a formal context on the Dhamma and I say something that goes against your deepest understanding, don't just leave it. Come back and talk to me about it. And that way we, we protect this relationship and allow it to be something that really supports truth. So I will let my bit stop here and ask that we change the, the floor, open up questions, discussions, comments and see what you have to say about all of this. what you said there at the very end um, taking what feels right to us and leaving alone what doesn't because it's such it's 180 degrees from so many other spiritual paths where you're, where you're told that you must believe what I tell you and I, I really appreciate that freedom and thank you very much One of the things you said really struck my <coughs> kind of a, uh, thinking was uh, a friend of mine that joked with me after this afternoon, you know, like when I told him, hey, I just got out of the three days thing. Like, he's a very spiritual guy himself, and he joked, you know, you know, I have this friend who started meditating and he stopped talking to me. It's been about six years. He used to talk and chat. I don't want to lose you. He just. <laughs> and, as you said, you know, like it doesn't mean that you just give up everything. You have to go out and make more friends. And I mean, it's just uh, I mean, that's that's there's my answer. I'm going to give it to him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Lovely. Lovely. I completely agree with what you said about the importance of community and a lot of my own kind of personal development outside of the Christian has been developing community and I've seen the benefits of it. I, I learned a lot about creating wholesome states, both within the Dharma and outside. And I'm still haunted by uh, kind of a constant or a 
frequent feelings that am I doing the right thing? What I'm doing right now is not what I should be doing. Although objectively, most of what I do is you know, creating wholesome states as you spoke of. I'm still haunted and it's it's a it's verbalized and also a feeling tone at times. Final piece of it. I um, got a lot of yesterday, I think we talked about some you talked about sometimes it's added to simply a bear witness. Maybe something doesn't need to be done at this moment. Just to witness. And that I took as kind of my answer for the, this problem about wondering if I'm doing the right thing. There's no question there, but do you have any, <laughs> any response? Well, most of us have um, mental habits that are um, doubting or questioning or uncertain about what we're doing and where we are placed in a, in a, in a larger picture. And, and some of them come because it's, it's just hard for us simply to rest in the unknown. And some of them come because they're fragments of lack of self-love that repeat. Okay? So whether the origin is because of an inability to be with uncertainty or whether the origin is from a, a lack of, of uh, self-love that somehow gets triggered under certain circumstances, they're patterns that are repeating. Now, you answered your question yourself. Sometimes all that is needed is to bear witness that this is what's happening. Sometimes what's needed is to get a little bit more underneath what's actually driving it. All right? So I was living in a hut in the forest, and uh, there were some trees that were too close to the hut, and so the trees were chopped down, and they were chopped into four foot or three foot segments and they were just stacked and I noticed that some of this, these segments were sprouting okay now there was no root there was no tree it was just a three foot segment of log and it was still sprouting the momentum in the log had enough energy to cause a sprout even though it didn't have a root on it but there was no need to feel anxious because it wasn't going anywhere okay so sometimes these things are, are unrooted. They don't have roots any longer, but they still still have momentum in them. Sometimes they do have roots, and then one needs to take a little bit care that it doesn't sprout a whole new growth of something that isn't helpful. And so for each of us to get a sense of whether this has roots or doesn't have roots is our own personal inquiry. But certainly the ability just to bear witness is there's no harm in that, okay? So we, we like to have answers to things and get things solved, you know? That's really, we like that. And we absolutely love certainty and we absolutely do not like uncertainty, okay? But being able to allow attention to not know is one of the things that really helps shift between working with just conditions and resting in that which doesn't have conditions as its basis. So as uncomfortable as it is, it's incredibly useful. Yeah? Yeah. Question. It seems as though you now coming to the U.S. is to explore the monastic way community relationship. Um, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. Well, I I feel many ways very blessed that I've had an opportunity to live these last 20 years as a monastic. It's rare. It's rare to be supported in this way. It's rare to have the opportunity to practice in this kind of a dedicated way. And I also see that along with the enormous blessings that have come from the tradition, there have also been some embedded cultural biases that no longer serve. They're not useful any longer. And so in the West in particular, where there's an interest in waking up that's shared amongst a lot of people, and there's quite a sophisticated and mature Dhamma community of Dhamma teachers who are lay teachers, there are many ways that I'm interested in exploring the traditional model that has had very clear lines about this and that. 
you know, the monks and the nuns are the ones who have the spiritual authority and the lay people are the ones who give the material requisites, you know. It's like, well, yes, but. (laughs) So for me, what I'm interested in is coming back to the basic principle, which is, is that the Buddha was intending to create a fourfold Sangha that supported awakening. That was his interest. All right. Monastics are living a life of renunciation because it can be useful for some to live that way. So if we take these two basic things as like principles of given, all right, then given the context of what we're living with in the West, where you've got a community of lay practitioners, many whom are Dhamma teachers in their own right, with their own spiritual authority, Many uh, people are peers. You know, I have, I have, I have lay people who are, I consider peers. What makes sense in terms of new models that supports awakening that moves out of some of the cultural biases that have been passed down for generations and that has such absolutely delineated lines that doesn't have any room for flexibility, okay? So I have questions. I don't have answers. All right, But I have an intuitive feeling of something when it feels like it's moving in the right direction. All right, Something that is genuinely committed to supporting awakening for everybody and that also honors the basic principles of the Dhammavinya that the Buddha created and moves out of some of these gender biases that have been passed on for generations. So, you know, in my exploration, you know, some of the things that are just coming to me as like a possible way is a kind of interdisciplinary approach because what I found is, is, is that in spite of the brilliance of the Dhammavinya and in spite of the enlightenment of the masters that have existed since the time of the Buddha, some of these cultural biases have gone unchallenged for 2,500 years, Okay. So the monastic tradition as an institution doesn't have within it the capacity to move out of the things that have been passed down. It needs insight and wisdom from outside. One of the ideas that was um, suggested to me, which I found fascinating, though I haven't a clue in the world how it might work, is to have a monastic community that is um, collaboratively run by monastics and lay people. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so what I'm interested in is exploring new models that touch the essential interest in awakening that is benefiting the fourfold assembly that moves out of cultural biases and that retains the essential ingredients of the Dhammavinya that was uh, given. How? (laughs) Well, that hasn't arrived yet, so uncertainty is a large component of my practice. Just not knowing. Yes? Wasn't there a cultural bias when Buddha started it all back then? What was the cultural bias? Whatever you're talking about, the cultural bias of that monastic well, it, system had it seems, it seems, it seems from um, my experience of coming to having been to India in the last few years that the relationship with the women in India, contemporarily, it's very uncommon to see women living as independent agents. They're related to family or to husbands or to children or to... So they don't live as an independent. So their existence is dependent on being connected to the men. Yeah. So in the West now, that's no longer a cultural assumption which works. All right, for many of us. Yeah. So, but embedded in the monastic tradition is that assumption that the nuns' existence is dependent on the monks. Yeah. And so we can't ordain ourselves. You know, we need the monks to ordain us. And the monks are responsible for certain things, you know, and all the rest of that. So that's, that's a cultural bias. The other cultural bias, which is interesting because, you know, I'm not that clear on it, but 
it seems as if the culture has moved from a hierarchical model to a democratic model. And that's been an evolution that's happened over time. And interestingly enough, the Vinaya, the monastic discipline, is more based on consensus when it's actually based on hierarchy. So what has been passed down is a hierarchical model, but the reality is is what the Vinaya actually describes as a consensus-based model. And so how one changes a hierarchical model into a consensus-based model where the references to the elders who have more experience takes quite a lot of discernment and a lot of patience and an awful lot of tears. (laughs) Because these things are not simple. And part of the reason why they're not simple is because it's not just simply a matter of external structures. These principles are embedded in each of us. And so we have taken them as the way that we live. And so it's not just about creating a new model. It's about undoing the places where they're residing inside of ourselves that we can actually embody the new model in a way that works. You know, one of the images that I found very striking was is, is that you know, the, the, the story goes is that it took Moses 40 years to take people to the promised land. Okay, well, to cross the Sinai Desert for most people under any circumstances is not going to take 40 years. It's not a big area. Yeah. But when you think about what was happening was is that he was taking a group of people who were born into slavery. All right. That's what they knew. That was their belief system. That was their conditioning and that was their reference point. In order to get to the promised land, they, the people who had been born into slavery had to die. Because if you took the people who had been born into that kind of conditioning, the only thing that they would do was recreate it in the promised land. So when you understand it in terms of that, then the time it took to cross the Sinai Desert makes a whole new sense. Okay, So I don't think we need to wait until everybody who's been born into these cultural biases dies. (laughs) We might have to wait a long time. But what I think is needed is an absolute commitment to address this as a primary place of concern and move out of it. Okay, Not just as a concept and as structures, but to look and identify where the stuff is actually residing in us how we're relating to it as an internal experience. And if there is sufficient commitment to do that profound and difficult internal work, then I trust that that will be the optimum container through which new models can emerge. And that's what I'm interested in. And that's what Awakening Truth is interested in supporting, is creating an environment where that is the work that's supported to be done. So when I call AT&T, I get someone in India that's helping to create then cultural bias because it's giving everybody these big fancy jobs there. I don't understand. So so women can have uh, financial freedom. so okay, I, I, I'm not understanding what, what you're are you asking. talking about the biases, the cultural biases in India. Okay, so there have been changes, but when I've gone to India now, what I find is, is, is that it's still very unusual to see women operating yeah. independently. It's just that's a teeny exception. Yeah, yeah. Teeny, teeny. Teeny, teeny. So that kind of model, which is, is that women didn't have a right to exist independent from this, that, and the next thing, has been embedded in the monastic structure and has gotten passed down. Something else that, that seems to be embedded in the monastic culture um, is the attitude towards um, what, a, what awakening looks like, what the lifestyle for awakening is. I mean, um, I struggle sometimes with an Eastern or an Indian or um, uh, transmission of the Dharma in its kind of strict form where it's, for instance, like the 37 practices of the Bodhisattva where 
it seems to be encouraged, you know, or yogic practice, or complete isolation, you know, it's kind of a, a counterpoint to what you're talking about, the need for community. In the 37 practice of, of Bodhisattva, it's pointed out how relationships are suffering and are a distraction to retreat to isolated places and to avoid people and to avoid relationships. And uh, that um, uh, that approach of uh, renunciation in, in its strictest form uh, as the only path, that's kind of an inflexible uh, point of view. And so that's another uh, obstacle that is a separation. Sometimes even in the West, when a lay teacher is teaching, they want to be completely um, uh, uh, truthful to the teaching, so they transmit it exactly as it was. And then it seems like a disembodied thing, and all of those structures and restrictions are passed along too. And even the lay teacher seems, doesn't seem like a, a human being anymore, you know, until some accident happens and they have the opportunity to share their own experience about sneaking out in the middle of the night and going to get a hamburger, and then you realize, oh, well, they're human beings, and that uh, I, the, the, uh, the ideal <laughs> is so far away. So, having lived in the monastery for many years, it's been an interesting observation to watch how we've handled that, because the same thing, you know, when the monks first came from Thailand, the emphasis was on strong practice in isolation and no communication with you know when you were practicing properly you were practicing by yourself and you weren't relating to each other but one of the things that we've come to learn over the decades now of practicing in that way is is, is that again you're talking about different cultural contexts okay and I don't know what it's like now because I think now Asia is getting as neurotic as the West you know in some ways you know the possibility for it is different than what it used to be but Asia in the past you know uh, an individual person did not exist as an individual person they existed as embedded in a family structure in a village structure in a clan structure in a caste structure and so their own experience was embedded with a huge cultural context and so because that's how they identified themselves in that context one could see that it was really useful for them to practice with solitude because their whole familiarity was in being in relationship with others okay and as a result most people in that context didn't have a fractured or fragmented sense of group belonging because their their identity was a sense of group belonging okay and with it came some of the psychological attributes of feeling like you know of, of caring and 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 support that comes from having an extended family that they're connected to okay you transplant that into the West where we've got different values and virtually no one comes with an intact sense of family belonging, okay? And virtually no one comes with an intact sense of primary caring having been intact and, and, and so there's, there's fractures along the relational line that don't exist as cultural phenomena in Asia, okay? So the need for solitude which comes as a cultural context for people who are embedded in being with each other and is useful, okay? In the West is very, um, one needs to be cautious because obviously silence and solitude is helpful. But what one also needs to do is to build, to build the sense of being in a relationship field that is supportive and healthy and kind and compassionate and nourishing and caring and supportive. Because many people in a Western context don't have that. And so then what you get is you get people longing for solitude because they have no capacity to relate to other people. Okay? It's not because it's a useful practice, it's because it's supporting all the weaknesses that they've never been able to address. And then what is needed is to have teachers who are able to observe what's going on for individual people or context that is be able to observe what's going on for individual people and to encourage them to do what they don't want to do because that's where they need to grow. So it's classic that the people who don't have any relational ties want to hang out in the caves. 
And the people who are control freaks want systematic meditation that goes like this because we tend to gravitate to that which supports our own biases. And so it takes a, a mature, broad, uh, sophisticated teaching and teacher and, and community to be able to see those kind of tendencies and to reflect back to the individual in a way where it's genuinely useful, not just going along with party lines. So what the monastery has evolved as a model in England, which is actually one that I feel is useful, is alternating times of solitude and alternating times of community, where community and relationship practice is valued and something where we put time and energy in as well as times of solitude and times of being alone. And to me, this is a healthy balance. Yes? Um, I appreciate everything you said. It's resonated with me. And um, this has made me me appreciate how I just think we all have this tendency to um, turn pieces of things into religion. Like when you said that about meditation, like isolating that piece of it and making it into everything. And it felt very liberating to me to hear you say that Mm -hmm. because I'm not comfortable with that at all. And um, I'm very uncomfortable with that. And I really appreciated what you had to say about the devotional aspect, the celebratory aspect. Um, Those forms of spirituality, for me, maybe that's my bias. earth-based spirituality, but that used to be part of it. And now it's like, well, no, you know, that's, that's nothing to do with it. That's not true. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but those elements for me are help with, help me with liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't find them the opposite or something I want to get rid of. Mm-hmm. I, I want more I mean, I even just really appreciated the, the um, chanting in the beginning. Mm. Because for me, those are very nurturing mm-hmm. practices. Mm. And it felt good to hear somebody say that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing. So my eye is on the time, and I heard something about 8 o'clock as the pumpkin hour. <laughs> <laughs> So I think we might need to change um, again and have announcements now. Yeah. So again, I just want to express my appreciation and for your interest, and particularly for Catherine and Tam and Valerie and Amy, who were part of the organizational team that invited and organized this all happening and have taken such loving care of me while I've been here. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah.